Father, we thank you for your uh, will that gets worked out into our lives, that you shape us and guide us and mold us and, and have this plan. And, and so I pray that we would be the clay that is useful to you, moldable, and so that when we look at your word, I pray that we'd submit ourselves to it. Not to um, a particular person's interpretation, but to what you have said. We stand on what you have said. So may we understand what you have said this morning. And then obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in the book of Daniel, and kind of the idea behind this summer series is uh, the fact that Daniel is, is a book about kingdoms, I believe. Uh, there's the Babylonian kingdom that's ruling, the Persians are coming, uh, Rome's coming later, uh, but eventually the kingdom of God will come. And so Daniel then is living in a place where, you know, God's rule over Israel is not as clear as maybe it once was, and yet it, he's still ruling. So how does it work that you can live in a foreign land and live faithfully? Live in a different kingdom even though you're in this kingdom. That, that's kind of what we're looking at this morning and, and throughout this summer. So uh, today, as you can see from the title, we're asking this question, does prayer actually change things? So we've got a lot to pray for in this country. And you think about the upcoming elections. I remember the last set of elections where, um, you know, it was Obama's first presidency, you know, the first time around, I believe he was running against McCain. And I remember people in church were just very, very prayerful and calling out to God. And um, why do we pray during elections? Why do we do this? Do we believe that it's going to change the outcome of the election? Well, why do we pray for the sick? Why do we pray for the personal things in your life? I want you to think about this. If, if you believe that God is sovereign, that is, he, He's all-powerful, and He's got a plan, and He knows everything, and He's going to work out His plan, if you believe that, then what does prayer do? If nothing can stop God's plan, then why do you pray? It seems like he's just going to do what he's going to do. I think it's an important question to answer. Because otherwise you might, you might find yourself saying, well, you know, maybe God does change his mind on this and that, and, and, and maybe, but God has a plan. Uh, check out the first passage. We can put the first passage up, Jim. Isaiah 14, 27 for the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? There's this idea that if God's going to do something, it's going to get done. So then why do we pray? And it's not just the big things. It's not just these, these huge plans and you can't stop them. It's even the small things like the casting of lots, the rolling of dice. Can we get that passage up? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God's a God of Yahtzee, right? You know? I lose every time, and I, now I know God is against me, according to Proverbs 16.33. I think I saw my father-in-law get, like, three Yahtzees in a row one time. Wasn't that right? Christy's not here to confirm that. Like, three in a row. 
I mean, again, you cast the dice, God's in the decision of it. Okay, so he's in the big things and the little things. He's in control of everything. He is all-powerful. He's got a plan. He knows everything. You can't stop him. So why am I asking him for things if he's just going to do what he's going to do? I hope you see this poses a little bit of a problem for those of you that have a big view of God. It is a little bit of a problem for us. But I think there's a really good answer to this, and I want us to look at Daniel 2 to see it. So would you turn to Daniel chapter 2? Daniel 2. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you, hopefully in the chair or in the row somewhere there. Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When, the, when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants to dream and we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will cut you into pieces and your houses turn into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Uh, You ever talk to a teenager and they're like all in one way or another? I hate that. Do you want some broccoli? No, I hate it. Or... uh, you know, do you want some ice cream? Yes, I love it. Give me 20 scoops, you know. Um, it's like Nebuchadnezzar, you know. He's it's like, like a kid, like, you know. Uh, tell me my dream, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. So verse 7, once more they replied, let the king tell the servants the dream, and we'll interpret it for you, you know. And the king answered, this is verse 8, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize this is what I have firmly decided If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. That sounds like a kid. Um, So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked for such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Let's pause there for a minute. Part one, the dream of a violent king. So Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams, and they're bothering him. And he asks for something that's never been asked for before. Not only do I want an interpretation for my dream, but I want you to tell me what I dreamed. Now, wise men can make up a lot of stuff on the fly. I mean, you've seen talkers. They can talk their way out of anything. So you've got these wise guys, and they're talkers. And, and Nebuchadnezzar can say, here's my dream, and they can say, this is what it means, and they can connect some dots, and it sounds really good, and there it is, king. But this time he says, if you really have the power you claim to have, Tell me what my dream was and tell me what it means. And they're like, nobody can do that. And this sets us up for something that God has called throughout this whole chapter. 
it sets us up to see that God is the revealer of mysteries. Only God can reveal the deep mysteries, the deep things of life. They can't do it. And so, in, in a petulant rage, the king says, well, then kill all the wise men. And that includes Daniel, who presumably was never called in the first time to talk to King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's finding out. Part 2. Here's what Daniel does. Verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. So, so I'm guessing here, if you picture this in your mind, Arioch is coming with a message and a sword. You wise men, you're dead. There you go. He's coming with a sword. Daniel spoke to him, verse 14, with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a stupid, I mean a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went into the king and asked him for a time, give me time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just so you know. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men from Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. Daniel meets Arioch, and I'm guessing again, Arioch has a sword in his hand, and Daniel says, give us more time, we can figure this out. And Daniel's thinking, we're going to ask God to reveal this so he can save our lives. And so he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together, let's get together and let's pray about this. The four of them, let's pray. And that brings up another good prayer question. Why do we pray in groups? Why do we have corporate prayer? Why do we have the prayer chain email that goes out for many people to pray? Why do people meet in my office on Sunday morning and pray for what happens here in multiples? You know, not just one, but more than one. Why do many people pray? Does it twist God's arm? See, I don't, I don't want us to get the impression of God that it's like, um, kind of like, well, let's go with the ice cream thing. We've done that once already today. Um, when one kid says, can we get some ice cream? And you're like, no. And then like the other three of your kids say, no, we want ice cream. And you're like, fine, I'll take you, you know. If five of you ask, I'll do it. If ten of you ask, it's a done deal. Is that the way God is? Like, well, no, that, that can't be. So, so why do we pray in groups? Why did Daniel immediately get his three friends and say, all of us need to pray? Was Daniel prayers not enough? Would, would God not pay attention to Daniel, but he'd pay attention to all four of them? I can't believe that. I, I can't go there. Uh, think about Elijah and James, if we can pull that verse up. Remember what, uh, I'm sorry, the next one. James, there we go. Uh, this is James 5. Uh, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man, that's singular, is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man, singular, just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. One guy, one guy prayed and that's what happens. Three and a half years, one guy. So you can't tell me that 
numbers somehow twist the almighty arm of God, I know there's a lot of good reasons for corporate prayer. A few. It's encouraging to the group that prays together. Uh, it keeps you on task, right? When I'm with the group, uh, when I'm by myself, my mind can wander. Are you the kind of person that prays before you go to bed and you kind of just drift off praying? I'm not saying that's even bad. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, you know, that, that's just us, human condition. Uh, but with a group, I'm a little more focused. And when I hear people pray for me, I'm a little more encouraged. When someone writes me an email and says, Now I've been praying for you, that just lifts me. I wonder if you've ever seen this passage in Corinthians, though, that gives a really good reason why we pray in groups. This is Paul, Apostle Paul. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayer. So he's saying the Corinthian church is praying as a church. Prayers, plural. They're praying for Paul's deliverance. As you, verse 11, as you help us by your prayers, plural, then many, many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to the prayers of many. You see what he's saying? When many pray and the answer comes, then the many give thanks and God gets glorified. Do you get it? If the prayer chain email goes out and 20 people pray and 20 people see what God does, then 20 people say, praise God, look what you're doing. This is awesome. 20 people and God gets glorified. Can he work through the one? Yes. Can he work through the 20? Yes. Is his arm twisted? I don't have a verse that says that. At least I don't know of one. Some people quote Matthew 18, and sometimes I wonder if Matthew 18 has introduced something into our prayer theology that maybe wasn't intended. Uh, but Jesus says, when you agree on anything, it, it will be done. I'm paraphrasing. When you, when you agree on something in prayer, it will be done. But my only caution with that passage First of all, it's a single passage isolated by itself. I don't have other verses that say the same thing. But also that passage specifically is about church discipline. It's talking about a discipline situation. I believe that's the context of it. So, yeah, we should tell people our prayer requests. Yes, James says, call the elders in if you're sick. Have them anoint you with oil. Elders, plural, multiple. We're commanded to get together and pray. Let's do it in groups. Let's, let's have prayer chains. But let's not believe that we're twisting God's arm because we hit 30. We have 30 praying. Yes, we have 50. Now God will hear us. Because Elijah was a man just like us. He was a man just like us. And he prayed. And God answered. So, more people praying leads to more praise to God. I mean, that's what Corinthians... I, there's lots of good reasons to get in groups and pray. That's one I, I just love. I love that one. More glory to God. God loves it when we talk to Him. And He loves it when multiple people talk to Him about the same thing. Okay, moving on though. Uh, where are we at? God answers their prayers 
and Daniel has a vision, and it gives him the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So what does Daniel do in verse 19? The thing we should all do. He praises God in heaven, and he says this, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. There we are. There's a statement on sovereignty there. He has all wisdom and He has all power. They're His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. That would include presidents. Uh, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. Don't forget to praise God. That's one of the reasons why we pray in groups. That's one of the reasons why the prayer chain email goes out so that we can all praise Him together and He gets glorified when He answers. That's one of the purposes of it. So praise Him like Daniel does here. Verse 24, Then Daniel goes to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said, Don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret the dream for him. So Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream or interpret it? Otherwise I'll cut you to pieces and burn your house down and no one will ever hear from you again. I am the king, right? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I'll say it again. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed were these. And then he explains the dream. Um, Let me say this. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream? Well, that's easy. Sunday school answer. God did. God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream that troubled him and that the dream didn't cause him, but he, he got in a rage. But, but obviously the dream prompted this, I'm going to kill all you wise men. So Daniel and his three friends had their lives endangered because God gave Nebuchadnezzar, a violent man, a dream. And then in verse 20, what's the verse we just read? 27 and 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know what was going to happen in days to come in that dream, which we're about to look at in a second. He wanted the king to know. So get this now. I mean, make sure you're making the connections here. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. The king wants to kill everybody because of it, all the wise men. God wants the king to know what the dream means, but none of that can happen unless there's prayer. You get that? God wants the king to know what his dream means, but he can't know until Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray. Do you know how awesome that is? 
God's saying, I want to do something and I'm not going to do it until you ask for it. What? Okay. So they ask. And God's purposes can work themselves out now. Here's the dream. Part three. Uh, The statue of kingdoms. I'm going to give you a couple pictures of the statue. I'm not going to read the lengthy text or we'd be here for quite a while. Uh, But I just want to show you a picture of it. And this comes with an interpretation. Uh, So, assuming this interpretation is absolutely correct, and I I believe it is, this is the statue. At the top, this is the dream. He saw a statue and the head was of gold. Gold being a precious metal. That's the kingdom of Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's at the top. Now, uh, then you come down and you have the chest and the arms of silver. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, that's the next empire up on the list after Babylon. The belly and thighs of bronze is the kingdom of ancient Greece. And then as you work your way down, the legs of iron is the kingdom of ancient Rome, strong as iron. And then you have uh, feet of iron and clay. And this is the very interesting one that we'll probably come back to at the end of Daniel later in the summer. There's the kingdom of like a restored Rome because there's iron like Rome and yet there's this weak clay mixed in with it. That doesn't really go together, but it is in this vision. And what we see here is, what we think is going on here is between the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, there seems to be this gap of time that we're living in right now. I'll say it again, between the legs of iron and the feet, there seems to be a gap that's not revealed in the statue, and we're living in that gap right now, the church age. And one day there's going to be this kingdom of restored Rome, the Antichrist will arise in that time, and then you've got this rock. Now the scripture is very clear, Daniel says it's a rock not cut by the hands of man. It's a rock that no human has touched to make it a rock. In other words, it's a rock from God. And that rock is going to fly down and crush everything. We can get the second picture up. You know, this rock is flying down and it's going to crush this statue. And that rock is Christ. Or maybe more exactly I could say it, that rock is the kingdom of God. That God's going to set up And that kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. And Daniel says, nothing will thwart that kingdom. Nothing will stop it. It will last forever. It's coming. So we're waiting for the rock. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the rock. Now this is what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. I still think telling him a dream like this is going to feel a little risky when you've got a violent guy in front of you, you know? Like, your kingdom's going to be gone one day and it's going to give it over to the Persians. That's still not a fun message, but Daniel gives it. And now we come to the end. He gives the vision, explains it. Uh, let's pick it up in uh, verse 45, and we'll, we'll end the scripture here. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold 
you, Nebuchadnezzar, to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honor, ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer, here it is again, the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Does prayer change things? I wonder whose perspective we're looking at when we ask the question. From our perspective, when you pray, things change. Things change. Your heart changes. Sometimes your circumstances change. Prayer changes things. Does it change things from God's perspective? I think God has a plan and you can't stop it. So from His perspective, it doesn't actually change. How do we explain this in human terms? This is the best I can do. Somehow... God has given us a free will. You can choose to pray for somebody or not pray for somebody. And somehow in that free will, God doesn't violate your free will. You're free to pray and free not to pray. It's up to you. Do you want God to work something out in your life? Well, you bring it to Him. If you don't want His help, then don't pray. and he won't, Then He won't help. Free will. It's your choice. Are you going to come to Him or not? And somehow when we pray it doesn't violate God's sovereignty. God's going to do what God's going to do. And if God's got a plan, your prayer isn't going to do plan B or plan C. God's got a plan, and somehow my prayers don't violate what He's planned on doing anyway. Somehow both of those things are absolutely true at the same time. So we can say this in conclusion. God accomplishes His purposes through the prayers of His people. Someone should amen that. God accomplishes His purposes through the prayers of His people. God says, I want to do this. And when you pray, I'm going to do it. Well, if you wanted to do it before I prayed, I did want to do it before you prayed. Well then, you don't have to figure all that out. There's mystery there. You, you don't have to know the end from the beginning. You don't have to know the infinite depths of God's mind. That's His mind. But I do know the Scripture shows us a God who answers our prayers. And He accomplished, He delights in doing what He's going to do through prayer. So again, I'm going to tell you this passage one more time. I'm going to say it again just for redundancy. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. It made Nebuchadnezzar really upset. And he was going to kill people. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know the interpretation of the dream. Here's the empires. And I'm going to send this rock that's going to smash it all. God wanted the king to know that. But he wasn't going to know it until there was prayer. 
The healing doesn't come until there's prayer. The salvation doesn't come for that person until there's prayer. The election doesn't turn until there's prayer. You don't understand what God is doing until you pray. I think for some of you, this passage should really speak to you specifically. If there's a mystery in your life, like what am I doing? What's God doing right now? I'm in a transitional point. Maybe you're going off to college or, or, or maybe there's just a big life event, a new season of your life right now starting. And you're trying to figure it out. You ask God, the revealer of mysteries. Sometimes we have to walk with him for quite a while before he reveals the mystery. I mean, I'm not saying it's automatic. I'm not promising that like Daniel, you're going to have a vision tonight. But you could. And God is the revealer of mysteries. So we call out to him. God saves people. And so, you know, I've been wrapping my brain around this all week and thinking, you know, so what if I don't pray for somebody and they never get healed? Is that because God didn't want to heal them? Or if I don't pray for someone's salvation, it's because God is going to judge them. He's already purposed that. You know, you, you can rack your brain on all those things, but all I can tell you at the end is God has a plan and He works it out through your prayers. So if you don't pray, you're not going to see the plan. And it's all going to work out anyway. And he, but He delights when you pray. Can I close it off here? I'm going to give you some time to close your eyes and bow your heads. Ask God something this morning. Ask Him something this morning as you bow your heads and close your eyes. Worship team, come on up. In about a minute or so, I'll have them play. Talk to God about this. Father, I pray this morning that we'd be encouraged, stirred up to cry out to You for all sorts of things. For our friends to be saved. For the sick to be healed. For Your plans to work out. To bring back the wayward Christian. To set our minds on Your things. To to help us live holy lives. There's so much that we need you for. So much, so many places that we need to see your activity. And we're so glad you listened to us. And Almighty God, all powerful, completely all wise, all knowing. And then you just say, Talk to me about it. Talk to me and I'll do something about it. What a privilege. And. We know what a responsibility that we can intercede for other people and you do something about it. May we be a prayerful, prayer-filled church. And may we see incredible activity according to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.
Amen.